I'm reading from Deuteronomy chapter 15, verses 7 to 11. If there is among you anyone in need, a member of your community in any of your towns within the land that the Lord your God is giving you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted towards your needy neighbor. You should rather open your hand willingly, lending enough to meet the need, whatever it might be. Be careful that you do not entertain a mean thought, thinking the seventh year, the year of remission is near, and therefore view your needy neighbor with hostility and give nothing. Your neighbor might cry to the Lord against you, and you would incur guilt. Give liberally and be ungrudging when you do so, for on this account, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all that you undertake. Since there will never cease to be some in need on the earth, I therefore command you, open your hand to the poor and needy neighbor in your land. This next reading is from Mark chapter 14, verses 3 to 9, the anointing at Bethany. While he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he sat at the table, a woman came with an alabaster jar of very costly ointment of nard. And she broke open the jar and poured the ointment on his head. But some were there who said to one another in anger, why was the ointment wasted in this way? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and the money given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, Let her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has performed a good service for me. For you always have the poor with you, and you can now show kindness to them. You can show kindness to them whenever you wish, but you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for its burial. Truly I tell you, wherever the good news is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in remembrance of her. So as we continue our survey exploration of Meals with Jesus, today we come to a very messy one. Here in this room, there is a woman making a mess with a jar of ointment or, or scented oil and a group of men talking sense about care for the poor and proper behavior. So who are you going to go with? We know the answer, of course. We know the story. We know that this woman is doing something that is approved of and is a blessing. But if we didn't know the story, if we were flies on the wall in that dining room that's just got very messy, what would you think was going on? Who is sensible and sane and appropriate here? And who is getting it very badly wrong and ought to go home and have a lie down? What's happening? There's a gathering, there's an anointing, there's Jesus teaching, but what's happening? Somewhere in the heart of this story, and of the reactions recorded, there is an account of power relations and of their questioning. 
she shouldn't be there, of course. There, there are various accounts of somebody anointing Jesus when he's at table. Once it's Mary, the, brother of, the sister of Martha and Lazarus, who does it uh, when Jesus is at Lazarus' table. So we might be able to think that she should be there, except in that story Martha is serving, and we remember Martha wanted Mary not to sit at Jesus' feet, but help her serve in another story. Being at the table with the men was no place for a respectable woman. In another account of an anointing, a woman from the city, a sinner, by which we tend to read prostitute, though it's not spelled out, she bundles her way into the room and she anoints Jesus and scandalizes the group because, as his host mutters to himself, he ought to know what kind of woman is touching him. And then here, an unnamed, undesignated woman appears in the room and shocks them with her extravagance. And it becomes very messy. Anointing somebody's head with ointment was never going to be tidy. If you uh, pour this, it's presumably oil rather than solid uh, cream. Pour it over somebody's hair, it's going to splash on the floor and on the couch and on the cushions and on the robes. And the scent, if she uses the whole bottle, the scent of that is mingling with the smell of the food and the possibly unwashed bodies and the animals and the vegetation of the small town and so this is not a neat and tidy and safe event but it is so much more messy than that because in what she does and in how Jesus reacts the safe and secure structure of life and order and reality is just broken open and there is no going back they don't realize that at first First, what they see is this woman erupting into the room and spreading ointment over their guest's head. And they are so shocked that they, or at least some of them, mutter and complain against her. Wherever it happens in the gospel accounts, wherever there's an anointing, whether it's some of the stories where we read that Jesus' head's anointed or that his feet's anointed, or whether it's a a named and known woman or a described woman, or as here, somebody we can't place at all, there is always shock and distress and outrage. And in all of the stories, Jesus will not side with the outrage. So Mark tells us, Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing for me. The ointment she brought is probably her savings, perhaps her dowry, nard or spikenard. This scent, this anointing material was used to anoint kings and to anoint brides. It's about celebration. It's about honor. It's about worth. In offering it to him like this, she is offering herself to him wholly and completely as if to a husband. And she puts it on his head. Kings are anointed by priests, anointing their heads. But she does it. She does it. Here is one of the power structures being attacked in the face of a room full of men, of powerful men, of men who are in charge and have a say in the way in which the world is run. She breaks in and does something outrageous and unsanctioned. And because it's unsanctioned and unpermitted, they take to themselves, indeed, they know they have the right to tell her what she should do with her resources and with her actions. She shouldn't be doing this. She should be selling it and giving the money to the poor. Just as for most of history, in most contexts, powerful men have told women what to do, how to be, who they should obey, what they should do with their possessions. That's what they are doing here. It is patriarchy in action. Patriarchy, the world in which 
power and definition, truth and normality was defined by men, but even more than that, is defined by a certain group of men, the fathers, the elders, the ones who are powerful and whose power is self-perpetuating. The elders, the community who ruled, made the rules and were to be obeyed. They determined how the world should be. They were in charge. They may have obeyed the law, but they obeyed the law that they made. They didn't submit to others. They were submitted to. They were not defined by others' decisions or choices or truths. They make the definitions. They're the ones who spoke to and for the divine. They are favored of the divine. In whichever culture we're considering, since in them, through them, the divine ministered to and ruled and was present to the rest of the people. Anointing was done by men of men. The kings were anointed by the priests. The high priests were anointed, anointed the other priests. The anointing was done by men and for men and into this world, into this closed circle. A woman makes her way and does something that makes a mess of the world. Anointing is what priests do to make a king. Anointing is what the head of the household does to welcome a visitor. It is not the act of a woman. And this overturns things. This makes a mess of how the world is supposed to be, how they suppose it is. They assumed a model. This messes it up. The power of patriarchy is something that shaped that society and still shapes ours. We can see it very clearly in the power relations between men and women. The fact that men and women are still paid at differential rates. The fact that around the world, the majority of those living below the poverty line in, world, uh, in different countries are women. The assumptions about gender and nature that still shape our discourse. Somebody said to me just this week, isn't it dreadful when women become suicide bombers? And couldn't see why I wanted to say it was dreadful when anybody became a suicide bomber. Because as far as this person was concerned, women doing it was worse because women somehow weren't part of that world or were to be treated differently. I don't know. Patriarchy is much more subtle than every man oppresses every woman. Of course it's not that. But it's the power of the fathers, the ones who have and assume they have the right to power, to power and the right to act to protect their power. That's what is going on in this story and Jesus breaks it open because he validates and affirms her action in the face of their disapproval. Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She's done a beautiful thing for me. In the face of that charmed circle of patriarchal power, he just blows it open and he sets the action and the choice of the woman, her agency, her activity, her decision in a valued place. And what does that do to the power structures and the assumptions that we live with and that we find it hard to question. Where does it leave our structures and our charmed circle? What mess does it make of how we organize our society? Indeed, of how we organize our churches. But Jesus doesn't stop there. For they didn't stop. They weren't just objecting to a woman doing it. They were objecting to what was being done. They want the resource used not just, not for this messy expression, but to care for the poor. They want her as far as they're concerned, is on the outside, to care for the poor who are also on the outside and leave their little circle quite safe. And Jesus blows it apart. His comment about the poor being always there is a straight quotation from the law, from the section in Deuteronomy that Barbara read. 
a section in which people are directly commanded not to hoard resources, but to use them to care for others. There is a need, then as now. There are people in need, there are resources to help, and it never seems to get any easier. But there are, you may be intrigued to hear, some who argue that because Jesus said this, the poor are always with us, then actually we shouldn't do anything about it. Indeed, it is the way God ordained the world to be, and so challenging poverty and challenging the reasons for the roots of poverty is a waste of time and energy and not compliant with the will of God. Well, I hope we all see that for the nonsense that it is. In this account on Mark's writings, Jesus is quoting directly from Deuteronomy, and it's part of the writing about the year of Jubilee, when land was to be redistributed, when those who had become bonded laborers or slaves because of debt, were to be freed. When the whole reorganization of wealth and possessions was to be reset. The point is not that there should always be the poor, but because of the way that we deal with resources and the possession of them, we will always move towards inequality and imbalance, poverty and hoarding, and the Jubilee pattern was a way of redressing that. A direct intervention to reverse the pattern so that it didn't become set in stone or in lifetimes, and that the patterns that now appear to be completely intractable and life-denying simply didn't get the chance to be ingrained. So in the, the verses that Barbara read to us, there was that little comment, don't think, oh, in the seventh year, this will obviate, so I'm not going to give now. That's referring to this resetting. That in the seventh year, things would be changed and every 50th year things would be completely reset. Jesus' words about their always being poor are not a validation of the system we see around us of half and halves not, but a reminder, a quotation that calls the whole to mind that this is not how it is supposed to be and we should be changing it. It is Jesus' refusal to allow the rich to tell the poor what to do and his insistence that it is the rich who have to change and who have to give up their charmed circle. Now, I know that many here think very carefully about resources and the use of them and how to care for others. I know that many of us are very well aware about the imbalance of the world's use of resources, and we tackle it in a whole variety of ways. And I know that the problems can and do seem overwhelming, and we don't know what difference we can make. And the gifts that we give and the sharing we offer and the campaigning we take part in, and in some cases organize, really, really matter. And we know that poverty could be ended, by changing the patterns of use in the world and that the Jubilee campaign and the Drop the Debt campaign and all those ways of challenging the status quo matter so very much. And if you don't know about them and want to know more, there's plenty of resources available. But the way Jesus tackles this event suggests that there is even more going on at this meal than a challenge to global poverty because the thought of changing the way the world is is really threatening, is really difficult. But Jesus is going even further than that. He's saying it's about the power of decision. It's not that she, who in this context and is powerless and impoverished, should sort out the case of others who are also in that position. It is that the powerful and rich ones should change and be changed. And it's not that they should give gifts from their wealth to others' poverty, but that they reset the baseline. That's what Jubilee is. It's a return to an equality and a level playing field. And Jubilee is commanded regularly. It's not a one-off because it is a realistic statement. 
there is within it the knowledge that we will not stay equal, that there will always be those who gain and those who lose for all sorts of reasons, because of skill and training, because of determination, because of innate ability, because of ruthlessness. So there will always be a shape to society that says some have and some have not, but that is not a good thing. That is not to be accepted as built into the fabric of community. It is to be challenged by Jubilee, by deliberately and consistently redistributing and resetting the baseline on a regular basis. That's what he is calling them back to when he quotes Deuteronomy. It's not a disagreement. She could indeed have taken the ointment and sold it and given the money to the poor, and there would still have been poor and nothing would have changed. He's making a mess again. He's messing up the assumptions and the determination to protect the structures that keep those people around the table secure and in charge. And he says, shouldn't be like this. Shouldn't be like this. The law is there to tell you it should be different, and you need to listen to that. And he doesn't stop there. He challenges the power of patriarchy, and he messes up the charmed circle of rich and poverty, and then he really goes on to mess with their assumptions and expectations, because there's also the challenge of life and death. She has anointed my body against my burial. If you want an ultimate power structure, here it is. The power of death to end life. The power of causing death as the last greatest power of any tyrant. And it will be wielded against Jesus. To silence him, to defeat him, he will be killed. And the closed circle of life and death is absolute. But here he is, breaking it open. Or at least saying, it will be broken. She anoints me now, because she can't anoint me then. There will be no then. The death that is prefigured in her anointing, the death some women will turn up to respect and affirm when they go to his tomb to anoint his body on the first day of the week after that crucifixion, that death has no power. Here's again. That boundary, that charmed circle that Jesus is breaking is the one that separates life from death, the living from the dead. When I was working on this and had sort of come to this refrain of the powerful always have the power to tell the powerless what to do, men to tell women, the elite men to tell other men, the rich to tell the poor. I kind of wondered what I would do with this. Have the living always had the power to tell the dead what to do? We try to take it. Historically, one of the reasons for grave markers, for elaborate funerals, for various customs surrounding death that go back centuries, even millennia, back to cultures we almost don't recognize, Historically, it is the need of the living to control the dead and make sure they stay dead. To stay away, not to damage or contaminate the living. On the whole, that's not our way. Though the preponderance of ghost stories and our interest in our enjoyment of them as a culture suggests there is still something about trying to keep the dead under control that plays out in various ways. But the living control the dead in other ways too. The telling of history either personal stories or what's generally meant by historical study, is a way of controlling the dead, or at least trying to. You've heard people say it. You may even have said it yourself. It's what she would have wanted. I know he would have approved. Do we? Do we always believe the people who say it? Do we always believe it when we say it? Or are there at least occasions in which it's more about this is what I want and I'm going to invoke an authority that you can't challenge? Oh, well, we're doing it this way because it's how she would have liked it. Do you know? He would never have done that. Why are you doing it? Do you know? It's a way of trying to control. And telling history is the same. It can be a way of doing the same thing. Which bits of history we tell 
are about which bits of the story of our past we want to invoke to support our present, our identity. One of our Tuesday at Bloom outings this year was the Docklands Museum, and if you haven't been, go. It's a fascinating way of understanding the commerce and the trade and the buildings and the social structures of that part of London. Then there's the gallery about slavery. And that's not comfortable. And one of the comments recorded in that gallery speaks of how the visitor had not known this part of the story and is grateful to have been told. For we need that part of the story. We need not to control the voices of the dead. We need to hear the truth about ourselves and our culture not to keep it under wraps. The living have often tried to control the dead. The dead also control the living, or rather death all too often controls us. So many of our actions and our intentions are predicated on the need not to die. Death controls us. And I don't just mean physically, though there is that. Of course we try to preserve our lives and the lives of our loved ones, often with heroic actions and medical interventions. And sometimes it might be worth asking in whose interest this is. What are we doing? At what point do we have the courage and the love to say of a beloved or of ourselves, this is enough? At what point do we dare to think death is not the worst thing that can happen here? And if we're listening to Jesus' refusal to be bound by the boundaries of death, we might want to ask ourselves just what we actually believe here. And more to the point, just how much we dare to trust. But it plays out in so many other ways too. There's the death that comes with letting things go that we have treasured and given ourselves to. Activities or possessions or relationships. Our fear of the death involved can can draw us into hanging on and refusing change or newness because we can't bear the death involved. There's the death that comes with giving up control the death of our egos, that's a consequence of recognizing we are not the center of the universe. We cannot make everything safe or the way we want it, whatever it is that drives our need to control or dominate. We, like the men at that table, are completely enclosed in a circle of life that is dominated by death in all its forms. And through her anointing of him against his burial, this woman makes a mess of it and demonstrates that the boundary we perceive, the enclosure we give to ourselves, is destroyed and defeated in Jesus. It isn't that our bodies will not die. This isn't pie in the sky by and by. It's about living life now, here, fully and freely, because our lives, because of his life, are held and secured not by our own capacity to preserve our lives, but in a love that is absolute and unshakable and unchanging. Our lives now, when we dare to live them, our lives in eternity, and open to the glory and the joy and the possibility of that. She erupts into that charmed circle of patriarchy and riches and death, and in the mess that she makes, she demonstrates that all of those powers have no power. Patriarchy is undermined and wealth is overthrown, and death itself has no more dominion. And she doesn't do it because she has a degree in theology or a desire to make herself notorious. She does it because she adores Jesus and she wants to offer him what she has. And when she does that, there is no limit to what might happen. Madness or faith, stupidity or trust, it's a choice we need to make. 